Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, one of today's co-hosts and co-founder of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences sector by democratizing access to the world's best expertise in order to accelerate development. I'm excited to welcome Al Robichaud, the CSO at Sage Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Albert. Thank you very much. So to start off, we'd love to learn about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak today and to talk about some of the exciting things that we're doing at Sage. And it be my pleasure to tell you a little bit about how I got to where I am. I've been working now for just about 32 years in research and development and drug discovery. I am a principally trained a synthetic and medicinal chemist, having received my PhD back in the uh, late 80s. From there, I spent, let's just say the next 20 years or so in the big pharma landscape, uh, working for companies like Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, DuPont, and other companies in my journey to get to where I am. In 2011, I was approached with the opportunity to create a company that is focused on neuroscience medications for in those indications and in people suffering from diseases where very little choices remain for them to treat their disease. And it was a very exciting time in the business. There were not a lot of obvious companies working in the neuroscience field. And for me, it was a great opportunity to get involved with building the team that really was interested in some of the diseases that weren't getting a lot of attention from a large pharma environment. Great. And Al, to follow up, what was that experience like for you going from big pharma to early stage venture-backed biotech? And what were perhaps some of the commonalities and lessons learned from your early part of your career that carried through to Sage? That's a great question. I'd say that the big pharma industry back when I joined in the late 80s and the early 90s is significantly different than it is today. I think along the path, what I saw during my career in spending a number of different companies in the 20 or so years that I spent in large pharma was I saw a shift away from sort of the innovative approach to drug discovery and a willingness to take on some risk associated with the R&D necessary to discover new medicines. The industry seemed to be changing a bit into companies that were looking at just incremental improvements, sort of evolutionary versus revolutionary changes to the way people have approached medicine and have approached looking at diseases where there are pretty poor choices for patients suffering from those. What I saw was over the course of that 20 years was sort of a shift away from innovative thinking, away from this appetite for taking on some risk in the targets that are being chosen to treat those diseases. The opportunity that was presented to me by Sage was a very, very different one in that it was sort of jumping back almost 20 years of my career to when I started, where people were very excited by the science and excited by the potential to really do things differently. For me, the great opportunity was I had a chance really to put the team together of like-minded individuals that really believed that you still could attack some of these diseases in novel ways and potentially identify medicines that would really give people uh, significantly better choices than they have today. It's always exciting to be a pioneer in a new space. Why do you think there has been a lack of advancement in brain health treatments compared to other areas of medicine? It has and continues to be probably the most significant challenge in neuroscience. It's not a coincidence that I've spent 29 of my 32 years in this business in the neuroscience. When I first started my career in Merck in 1991, 
I worked on a cholesterol lowering program. And at the time, Merck marketed Mevacor. I think Zocor might have been on the horizon. Those drugs are long now available as generics. And I believe there are some, I want to say eight or nine uh, cholesterol medications just in the statin field alone. There are additional couple mechanisms that are now treating high levels of cholesterol and coronary heart disease, which are very, very impactful are additional improvements to statins or additional weapons in the armamentarium of treating those patients. So I think they've made huge advances in that area. However, in neuroscience, the challenge has remained. And what really interested me is the two main challenges. One, that you have to get the compound into the brain. And only 4% of known pharmaceuticals actually cross the blood-brain barrier to any appreciable amount. So that there was a significant challenge here just to make that happen. And as a chemist, having the ability or the knowledge of how to make the physical and chemical parameter changes to those molecules to sort of get them ready to get into the brain, that remained an interest to me as an additional challenge. The other challenge is that the preclinical validation and the models available to help you move molecules forward remain at an area where innovation really is paramount because there are very little ways to measure things like schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, even cognition in animals relative to how they would be in a human being. Those measurements and those assays that exist are for a large part empirical or observatory. There are very few ways to measure the levels of a lot of those diseases that I described in a way that's very reproducible or very analytic. So that challenge has made it very difficult for companies to find success in the neuroscience area. And I believe neuroscience drug success is somewhere on the order of 20 to 30% of other areas like oncology or cardiovascular disease or inflammation diseases. How do we correct some of these misconceptions about depression? I think the field is making great advances. Certainly the technical uh, field and the technical sciences are really starting to approach ways to diagnose the disease as well as potentially look at progression of the disease or improvement in disease for people being treated with, say, a pharmaceutical that you're asking, is it helping people in their depression or their anxiety? The ability now to do significant amount of monitoring, uh, there's a lot of devices that are being coming out now that are helping with monitoring people's behavior. It's early days, but I think in the next decade or so, you're going to see a significant advancement in the way that people can monitor their physical and mental well-being. You're already seeing it with a number of devices that can measure blood pressure or, or will in the future have the ability to measure blood pressure. Well, you can imagine those same devices might be able to measure characteristics that might describe somebody's well-being. So a good example would be how often people interact with others on their social media or on their own email platforms is a sign that people are feeling better. How often somebody walks, how often somebody goes outside, how often somebody speaks to an individual, how often somebody makes eye contact with an individual. If you could imagine that we had electronic devices or we had a way to capture that data, there would be an interesting look at could you monitor people's well-being in how they interact on a number of different parameters. It's a huge algorithmic and big data sort of exercise, but I think with all the advances that are going now in wearables and in the technical areas, I think that is just a matter of time before there'll be a lot more choices uh, in those areas for patients. And Al, given your vast experience in neuroscience, What's the current state of preclinical models in the field and translating those to clinical trials? That state has not necessarily improved a lot in the last couple of decades. Um, and that's what makes it remain such a challenge. So if I could for a second, just tell you a little bit about how SAGE's approach to treating diseases like depression has evolved and how we took that on. 
When I first came to the company, it was one of those targets that I was very wary of. I worked for a company that had antidepressant that failed a phase three clinical trial, which was a significant failure for the company. It's a significant expense for a company. And for a small biotech company like Sage, the possibility of doing that was something that really wasn't even on the table. Running a huge multi-thousand person, multiple month therapy for depression is a significant undertaking that requires a very large number of resources uh, to be able to do that. But our approach to things was to look at those diseases where there was a significant history of pharmacologic effect in the body of scientific data that existed. And those the two areas that I speak of are both modulation of the GABA system and modulation of the NMDA system, the inhibitory and excitatory, respectively, systems in your brain, that two of the probably the most important systems in your brain that modulate many, many things, such as your, your state, your mood, appetite, and even cognitive uh, function are monitored by these two systems. So our approach was to look at these systems, but one of our very, very different approaches that we went down when we started the company was to make sure that we had very, very early proof of signal or proof of concept in a clinical trial in humans, ideally leading with human data. We were doing everything in our power to allow us to get to a study that looked at the effects of the drug in a human model. Depression, anxiety, cognition in animal models, as I mentioned earlier, is very, very different than it is in human beings, or it's difficult sometimes to make the translational correlate between the animal model and the human model. The animal models are sometimes or almost always empirical in nature, and it's oftentimes not possible to run the same type of study in a human model. So ideally what you want is you want results in a human population as early on as you can in your development cycle to keep your costs and the time to a very reasonable amount to allow you to explore that. That's exactly how we approached it at SAGE. We did an up to 10 patient study, open label, so there was no placebo on board, looking to see if women responded to the therapy. If they did, the next step would be to do a placebo control trial. And that's how we progressed through the evolution of our studies of trying to get some human data in a disease and then ultimately do a placebo controlled study. I mentioned postpartum depression, and it's really important because postpartum depression is depression, but it's a very, very specific type of depression, you might imagine. Great. Thank you for that comprehensive background. You talked a little bit about what initially interested you in SAGE, given your past challenges in the space and the approach that was taken at SAGE. Where is SAGE now from a company building and leadership perspective? When I joined the company, I was one of the first. I was there on the day that the company sort of opened its doors. And when we were officially funded by Third Rock Ventures, which is a venture cap company in Boston that funds a lot of different companies. And this was one of the early neuroscience companies, one of the first neuroscience companies that they decided to fund. And at the time, it was primarily a discovery organization. We were trying to build a team to sort of ask the question, does a GABA modulator from the neuroactive steroid class of molecules work? in a number of different diseases of which depression was one of them. But we're also looking at seizure diseases and movement disorders, which we've made a lot of progress on since then. But the answer to your question is we're now just about 10 years later. I started in November of 2011, and I'm coming up on my 10th anniversary with the company. And it's a very exciting time for us because in the course of that 10 years, Sage has advanced nine molecules through development and into clinical studies. And we're currently investigating multiple drugs in both the GABA and MDA areas for various different therapies. So as we built the company over the years, we went from being a discovery organization to a preclinical development organization, to a clinical development organization, to a commercial company. So now Sage is a company of several hundred individuals focused on the mission of identifying medicines 
with unmet needs in the area of neuroscience, working through those issues, trying to understand the challenges associated with that particular indication, identifying those molecules that may really offer a choice to patients, and then taking them through the preclinical development pathway, the clinical development pathway, ultimately to commercialization. Very exciting progress. Seems like a very productive 10 plus years out. Being the leader of the R&D side of the org at Sage, I'm sure there have been many ups and downs along the way, as is the norm in discovery and development. I'm curious if you have any tips that you can share around keeping the team motivated through all of those ups and downs that I'm sure you and every single other company have faced along the way. Drug discovery and development primarily is, sadly, I want to say a business of failure. Drug discovery, many, many more things fail than succeed. And that's what makes it really challenging. And it really, you guys are both involved in this industry. You know what it's like. It does require a special kind of person, a special kind of individual who won't settle for it's okay. You sort of have to have this idea in your head that you're not going to give up. Now, it's obviously a balance between doing things that you shouldn't do because the idea truly isn't a good one versus not giving up an idea that you think can succeed. And and the difference between those wonderful successes and those unbelievable failures has been the ability to figure that equation out. And that's one that I'm still working on my career. But as you have pointed out, we've had our own share of ups and downs. Um, The company has enjoyed immense success in a number of different areas and a number of different trials. If we can zoom out a little bit, I'm wondering what the landscape for neuroscience drug discovery looks like 20 years from now? I think that in the next 20 years, you're going to see a significant advancement in a number of these different areas. I think we're starting to get the models that are a little bit more validated and a little bit more translational. There's a significant push in translational science and in translational medicine in identifying those studies that we do in the preclinical models that we can do in human studies. And we can get a very, very significant look at how people are responding to the therapy. One of those things that we do at Sage is look very closely at EEG, uh, electroencephalograms. We look at how the brain responds, how brain circuitry and brain signaling responds to the treatment of the drug. And a lot of studies have been going on in the last decade or so, and there's a lot more work going on now to try and correlate the response of the brain to a treatment with a therapeutic that is aimed at changing someone's trajectory to a disease progression. There are other translational models being out there like fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging where you can actually see how the brain is functioning before treatment with the therapeutic and after treatment with the therapeutic, looking at specific regions of the brain and how they respond to that therapeutic. If you treat an individual with a compound and you see no changes within the brain, it gives you a very good understanding that a couple things could be going on. Either the dose that you're using isn't one that's high enough to elicit an efficacious response, or you just have a medicine that's not hitting the target in the brain that you hoped it was. Those areas are really starting to receive a lot of attention in the research field, and it's really giving neuroscientists and neuroscience drug development people a lot more tools to utilize in the clinical studies once we have the animal models and we think that we have a good therapy for human beings. So Al, switching gears a bit, you've already had a highly productive career. If you could provide your younger self one piece of advice, knowing what you now know, what would you tell yourself? I read a funny story on one of the social media channels last week. It said, if you could go back in 20 years and only give yourself three words of advice, what would it be? I think mine would be buy Apple stock. Um, (laughs) I think most people's would also. But if I look back on my career as a scientist from 20 years ago, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to be involved with some incredibly, incredibly smart and ambitious people. And I say ambitious 
ambitious from a point of view of wanting to really help people treat their particular disease or disorder they're suffering from. And that was sort of one of the constant things that I sort of looked for when I went through my career. I went to work at Merck Research Labs in 1991 as a wet behind the ears chemist not even knowing how to spell drug discovery. I did not do medicinal chemistry in my graduate work. I did synthetic chemistry. I was what they call a synthetic jock. I like to make molecules. When I got into the business, I was immediately enamored with the opportunity to see how my love for chemistry could translate into treating people suffering from disease that they had no choices or had poor choices. And that's sort of been my mission for my, for my whole life. I've left a number of those companies, as I described to you before. I think I've worked at seven different companies. I never worked at one longer than nine years. And Sage is the first time I've ever, this is the longest career I've had at any company. It's my first biotech company at Sage. It's because I haven't seen Sage deviate from that real thirst and appetite for discovering new science and really making a benefit for patients. I saw it happen in some of my positions and some of my previous companies. I saw the company sort of change its approach to science. I saw as we started out, I sort of saw this gravitation away from depending upon innovation and willing to take some risk and make no bones about it. Drug discovery and development is a risky business. There are more failures than there are successes. You just have to accept those things. But if you can, it's incredibly rewarding when you see that first patient or any patient respond. I've been doing this for 32 years and I still am excited every day to go back to work and say, now, you know what? We're working on the NDA, the opportunity to help patients that really have very poor choices and a disease that affects millions of patients is very exciting for me and for the team in which I'm honored to be a part of. Well, Al, on that remarkable note, thank you for joining us today, for sharing the important work that you and your colleagues at SAGE are pursuing and for your insights on where you think the industry is headed. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for you as well. And it was really a pleasure to be able to tell you about the story of Sage and the team that we put together to do this wonderful research that hopefully really has an impact on those patients' lives. I really look forward to it. Look forward to tracking your progress. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.